On October 8th, the Tubbs Fire swept through our city of Santa Rosa. The fire destroyed over 3,000 structures, including 40 homes belonging to members of our church family. In light of this tragedy, we are teaching through passages that exhort us through seasons of adversity. Now let's join Pastor Ross with another message from the series entitled, Through the Fires. We're heading toward Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let me explain, while people are getting resettled, uh, normally we are a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, going through the Bible fellowship. That's what we do. Uh, We were, before the fires, in Mark chapter 8, having gone through chapters 1 through 8, and we're going to finish that book verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter. But after the fires, it just seemed time to just kind of take a break and go to the scriptures that bring comfort and hope and instruction how we should live in the light of adversity. And so this is fourth in a series of Through the Fires. And so holiday time is coming. Advent is a couple Sundays away where I normally would break from our line of study uh, four messages geared toward Christmas time and all of that joy that the Lord would become one of us, make us dwelling among men to offer his life as a ransom payment that we might be saved. And so, uh, praise the Lord, all good timing. With that said, uh, and you've already sort of put your finger there in Romans chapter 8, let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, these words, perhaps the most encouraging, definitely the most awesome words in the entire Bible before us this morning. And there's just no way to comprehend the goodness. We, <laughs> we need the help of the Holy Spirit to grasp the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us, Lord. Um, we pray that these words would be uplifting and healing, comforting and inspiring us to go deeper with you, to endure, to be patient in our sufferings, knowing that because of you and your love, we shall overcome. We thank you for this great and precious promise in Christ's name. And all God's people said, one of my very most favorite stories to tell happened to my little sister when we were very young, probably we were in our early 20s. Jody, a single mom at the time, the little baby boy trying to make ends meet, just relentless hardship all the time. All kinds of problems, dirt poor, raising the baby by herself. It was just a hard time for her. Now, one day she was issued a fix-it ticket. I believe a headlamp was out, something of that nature. Well, you know, as it happens, it got overlooked, and she moved across town, and so... Tickets that are undealt with, they are like good mutual funds. (laughs) They just keep increasing 
more and more exponentially. They add fines added to the fines, for the fines kind of thing. So, but wait, there's more. A failure to appear led to a bench warrant. She was arrested and tossed into jail. A good friend of ours, a good friend, went down and bailed Jody out. Well, the court date was, I think it's like that week. Uh, she got on the bus to go down to the courthouse, and she couldn't drive her car because her license was revoked. And so there she was with the little baby, uh, the diaper bag overflowing, her file of documents all over the place. She's having a really hard time. It just kind of exploded into tears on the way to the courthouse. And there was a guy sitting next, all in a nice suit, a businessman kind of guy. And the story just kind of bubbled out. And soon she was telling him all the little details and asking for advice. And, and just, he was a really kind guy. You know, gave her a hand with the baby and the diaper bag. She's trying to feed the baby and she's all upset and flustered and crying. And he said, well, yeah, you got it fixed. It'll probably be okay with you. Don't You have no, nothing to worry about. And she just remembered being so encouraged by that. Well, she found her place uh, there in the courtroom waiting. Now, I called her about two nights ago and just said, hey, I'm telling the story that I love to tell. I just want to make sure I get all the details right. It has been a long time. So she filled me in again. And then she said, there I sat in the courtroom. She said, I was shaking so bad I was humiliated, but my knees were going, the baby's crying, and I couldn't find my papers right. And then the bailiff says, all rise, and judge so-and-so is presiding. And so they all stood up, and to her surprise, the man came out in a long black robe. It was the man seated on the bus <laughs> next to her. The nicely dressed young man took the bus that day, and he just happened to be the judge presiding on her case. And so, as Jody was explaining, trying to explain what happened, he said, first of all, he smiled at her and said, I believe I know the details of this case. <laughs> and so, with one slap of that gavel, he dismissed the fines, restored her license, and dropped the case completely, and then said, and have a nice day. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's a great story. And you do know where I'm headed with this, don't you? Because her story, the key to that happy ending is that she had an opportunity to connect with the man in the long robe, her judge, before the appointed time. And that, if you're thinking spiritually, is the entire message of the gospel. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto men once to die and then face the bar of justice, right? So Jesus says, make sure that you make haste to get right with your adversary. He says, settle matters quickly with the one you're at odds with, lest you get to court and everything fall apart and not have a happy ending. I love Psalm 2. It says it so poetically. He says, submit to God's royal son, lest he become angry and your entire life be destroyed on the way. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. 
And that refuge is available to all of us even this morning because the opportunity exists for every human soul while you're living to get right with the judge before your appointed time. He's arranged something that I call amnesty. There's been 2,000 years in church history called the church age or the age of grace. I call it the age of amnesty. That means for 2,000 years and counting, he said, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your problem, whatever your crime, whatever, whosoever you are, all you have to do, have a change of heart, that's repentance, and trust in me. And you'll be saved. And on that great day, wow, you know, it it can go from a dreadful experience, which there will be for some, to a delightful, joy-filled experience. Because you met with the judge on the way, straighten the matters out. You know, we we say, and I, I don't think it's correct theology, to make peace with God. Make sure you make peace with God. God has made peace with us. Our job is to accept the peace. He's already brokered it. He's already achieved it. It's already done. The hard work is done. He's just saying yes or no. That's our job. That's how it all begins. Amen. Well, once you are reconciled, wow, the benefits, the joy, um, the, the blessings are just so wonderful, it's difficult for Paul to describe here in chapter 8, but that's what he's going to try to do. He's going to say, boy, once you're together with the Lord and reconciled, uh, just the, the, this beautiful reflection of amazing benefits that result once we are reconciled with God. And, and here's what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say in response to all of this, all of this, that we were estranged from God, that we had no hope and we were without God in this world, but God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, reconciled us. And all he says is just trust me, I've done it for you. What do we say in the light of all that? Well, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us everything we need, all things? Who would dare bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that has the power to condemn someone? That would be Christ Jesus, who actually died for your sins. More than that, he was raised to life for you and is at the right hand of God for you and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it says in Psalm 44 and verse 22, for your sake, O Lord, we face death all day long. It's kind of part and parcel of being God's people. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? I mean, it's just like you can just read that and applaud. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, go ahead. I, I know you want to. I mean, applaud and praise to God that those truths, though they're hard to grasp, are our heritage as believers. So, listen, our eyes and our ears and our minds and our souls have been treated to a, to a great privilege to hear those magnificent words again. Now, for context, we are at the middle here as he's writing. Uh, chapter 8, right in the middle of a 16-chapter letter, right? And so here he just wants to pause and says, let's consider what I just said all the beautiful truths from chapters 1 through chapter 8. And he says, just let's get excited about that. Our safety, our, the love God has for us that undergirds this entire uh, plan of salvation that God has freely given us. So these precious gemstones of truth that, that we live by, that we hang our souls on, you know, they're kind of framed in the network of, of seven rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is like there's an obvious answer, but God loves to use questions in the Bible. A lot of rhetorical questions. And here's why. If you make a statement about something, but it's just a statement. To impact us, he engages us as if he's talking to us. He says, let me reason with you. Now, if Jesus Christ says that even if you die, yet shall you live, should you be afraid of death? So it's sort of like a reasoning device to get your attention and to make a greater impact. And he does that a lot. And I'm going to choose two of those questions for headings for Dividing our text in half. So there'll be point one and point two. Point one, the header question will be, if God is for us, who could be against us? And, and that points to really our, that we are securely saved. Those are verses 31 to 35. And then our last point, our second point, will be that we're profoundly loved. Verses 36 through 39. And so that question begins with, who can separate us? from the love of Christ. And so let's start asking ourselves questions. I, I believe you will enjoy the answers. So we'll start with the first question then. If God is for us, who could be against us? Well, verse 31 is sort of the segue, right? What then shall we say in response to all of this mercy and grace that God has just unconditionally given the believer. What can we say? Well, we jump to this conclusion. If God is for us, who could be against us? So into the courtroom we go. This is very, uh, the, the, the Greek words are very connected to a litigation, a scene in, if you will, a heavenly court of justice. Uh, where the believer is destined to go along with the rest of the world. But there are two very different judgments. And they are different judgments at different times in God's plan. And so there's a dreadful version of judgment. And there's a delightful version. 
So he's been saying in Romans chapter, chapters one through three, he's been kind of laying an indictment to kind of give you the, the, the prompt of good news. Why it's such good news is because really we stood condemned in our sins because we were born that way, estranged from God. And so he levels that indictment and he says, you have an appointment with God, but listen, here's where the judgment will come that's dreadful. Here, I've got a slide of some of the verses that show that judgment can be dreadful. Behold, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord is the day, is judgment day, Malachi is talking about. And then again in Isaiah, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess, means to make an account, give an account for the life that God loaned you. And then again in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then, of course, the fulfillment of this terrible, dreadful day for many souls. John is looking at the already, but not yet. And he sees into the future, and the book of Revelation records it. Then I saw a great white throne, and he... And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, if your name wasn't in the book of life at this judgment, nobody fares well, and they receive what is called the second death. And so, you know, here's the thing. If God is for you, the Holy Spirit's placed that word there for a reason. Because he's not for everyone, i.e., a dreadful day of judgment awaits for some that he is not for. He loves them. He wants to be for them. But he has made a provision in that his only son, God, the son, the second person of the Godhead, willingly, without hesitation or reservation, lays his life down to be stripped and humiliated and beaten and tortured and crucified as a sin offering for your sins and my sins. And in God's justice, this is the way that he operates so that there is justice and if you receive that his, your sins went on him and paid, then instead of a dreadful thing, so, so if God is for you, who could be against you? Well, well pe people think God is for them. And then they blow up a bus station, right? And they praise God thinking God is happy with them. So the question is, if God is for you, he is for anybody who has received Christ, who has believed on his name, whose sins are washed away, whose sins have been paid for, who have become, through their faith and trust in that name, have become a child of the Almighty God, and he has lavished his love. And now you can say, if God is for me, who could be against me? Now it's a delightful experience. Let me show you the delightful passages about judgment. <laughs> Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, because this is a psalm written for God and God's people. 
for he comes to judge the earth, but the creation and all of us are singing with joy, Psalm 96. Let the rivers clap their hands in applause. Let the mountains sing together, not to mention all God's people. For the joy before the Lord, he's coming to judge the earth. Wow. And why are we so happy? Because evil is going away. The bad guys are going to get their just desserts. And those who are reconciled and who have been oppressed in this life will be honored. And so, of course, we sing for joy. Look at Paul. He's facing death. He knows he's going to die. And he's going to stand before God because that's just a spiritual law. It's appointed unto human beings once to die and then the judgment. Doesn't matter who you are. So Paul says, oh, I'm about to go that way toward judgment. And here's what he says. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but for everyone who longs for his appearing, not for everybody who's perfectly moral all the time. It's not about being good. It's about meeting the God man before your appointed time at the bar of Justice. If you reconcile, he wants to reconcile with you. That's what he's doing. We beg you on Christ's behalf, Paul speaking, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin, sin. So your sin, my sin, the sins of the world, so that on our behalf that we might become right with him. That's his heart. He doesn't will that anybody perish, but that everybody come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So he says, hey, on Judgment Day, I'm happy about it. He even says in Philippians 1, you know, Nero wants to kill me. I do want to stay around and be helpful here. I don't know which one to choose because he's looking forward to Judgment Day because his sins are wiped away. He's going to be rewarded. His sins are covered. Look, I have, a, I have a verse that I didn't, I forgot to use. It's Romans chapter 2. Look at this curious phrase. This will all take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Christ as my good news declares. I don't know about you, but that always throws me. All right, I read it. And I go, okay, I've got some good news, everybody. God's going to judge everybody's secrets. Oh, that doesn't sound like so much good news. There's a, 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 a church father said, I would rather be thrown into a swamp with a millstone chained to my neck than for the contents of my secret thoughts in my heart be revealed. But here's the joy of the Christian. He is an atoning sacrifice sent by God in love. The word atoning, it means to cover. So for us, when we stand before the secret things, the things renounced, the things confessed, the things he died for are buried in what Micah chapter 7 verse 14 says, the sea of forgetfulness. Because why? He paid for them. So Paul is going to now kind of remind everybody of these fantastic truths. Thank you for that verse there. So he says, what can we say? Let's dive into that question. In light of all of what I just said to you, what can you say to that? Well, he says, there's only one thing to say. If God is for me, who could be against me? 
And now he's going to say, he's going to walk through it step by step because he knows how sluggish we are and slow to believe and say, well, you don't know me and you don't know my situation. You don't know what I've done. And, And he says, okay, I think I'm going to cover it in this verse. These verses, I'm going to cover all your little outs, how we accept ourselves from the mercy and the grace and the love of God. We're always doing that. It's good for everybody in the world except me because of this exception. It's going to go, oh, I got you today. There's no escaping today. You are going to come along with his love and be an overcomer, whether he has to take you uh, harshly or you could come along quietly. Amen? That's how determined he is. Now, when it says, if God is for me, who could be against me? I'm assuming that we're not talking about some guy who's professing Christ and getting drunk on the weekends or has a a pornography habit. So now, if God is for you, God is still for you if you're a believer. But but you're hindering the process. You're not living like a Christian. And all that, all that means is just waking up and trying to do your best, being an honest, open, genuine believer who's trying to love God with everything you got and love others as you, as you love yourself. That's all he's talking about. Then you can say, if God is for me, who could be against me? So Paul wants to reflect. He says, ladies and gentlemen, verse 32. You've got it made. If God is for you, God's the one rooting for you, cheering for you. If God is saying, this person, I want this person, I want this person to make it. I want this person to be successful. I'm going to protect this person. I'm going to sustain this person. Then what do you have to worry about? If God is for you, happy with you, and he's happy with you because of what Christ did on your behalf, you see? And so we want to, here's a paraphrase. If God didn't hold back his dear son, but willingly, lovingly, without reservation, surrendered him over into the hands of evil men to be flogged, humiliated, tortured, and crucified on your behalf, if he took care of our greatest need, with the most costly of sacrifice, doesn't it make sense that he'll take care of everything else too? Really, it's the idea if the father has given his ultimate precious gift, how can we think he'd withhold a smaller one? Why do we do that? Here's what Paul's doing. In Latin, it's called argumentum of a fortiori, a fortiori, all right? I said it better first service. You know, I don't know what. I think it was Christian's last name that threw me. All right, so argumentum a fortiori. It sounds like something you'd order at an Italian restaurant. What it means is stronger to weaker. So he's saying this is a form of logic. Let me argue from if this big thing is true, wouldn't it make sense that this little thing is true? And so that's what he's doing. Why don't we go contemporizing it this way? Would you spend 
$350,000 on a Ferrari and then park it somewhere exposed to the elements. When the lights come on for maintenance, well, you're just going to ignore it. You know, you spent three hundred and fifty grand on that thing. You want to make sure it's well cared for. How about the racehorse that went for a record seventy million dollars? That horse eats very well, <laughs> and it lives in a barn that's way better than any one of our houses. Why? Because you better believe that they're going to care because it's a, a, a great price went in there. And I'm telling you what, you were not redeemed with something like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the second person of the Godhead. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 9, if you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, the fullness of God in a human body. To lay down on that cross like that. What would you pay to get out of hell? To have all your sins wiped away? What is that worth to have a clean conscience and a new life? Eternal at that. It's invaluable. And that's what God did for us. And if God invested that much in you, why would he not care? No wonder Jesus said, your father right this second knows how many hairs are on your head at this second. And tomorrow, he'll know that number as well. So if God cares so much about something that is irrelevant... Hair is overrated, you know. <laughs> God made some heads perfect, the rest he covered up with hair. <laughs> Give me something, all right? All right, so listen. And that's the argument in reverse. If God cares about something that doesn't matter, but he could say right now and tell you right this second how many hair follicles that are constantly changing. He's so in crazy love with you, how would you think he's not thinking about the rent or your marriage or your emotions or your children who are wandering? Please, yeah, thank you. How could you think that? It doesn't make any sense. And that's why Jesus says, please stop. He takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. And he, he, he didn't spill his blood for them. Yet he cares about them. How about you? He says, maybe you need to increase your faith just a little. So then he goes on to say, maybe a shift from, uh, you know, he'll graciously give us all things. Maybe you're afraid of the afterlife. He says, if you're apprehensive, oh, believer, you don't need to fear what happens after the grave. He says, who would dare, here's a paraphrase of verse 33, who would dare raise their bony finger, pointer finger, and hurl a single solitary accusation against anyone God himself has hand-selected for salvation? So who's going to condemn you? Who's going to slander you? Who's going to point something out about you? Whom God chosen, right, means before the world was, he looked everything over and he picked you and predestined you in love to receive Christ. 
So from the foundation of the world, he knew you and he chose you to be forgiven, to be clean of your sins, to make it to heaven. So that was the idea in your existence Then who could ever get in the way of that with any kind of accusation whatsoever? He's saying it's just impossible. Yet there are some dreadful creatures that do bring a charge against you. Let's start with the devil. Guess what Satan means? It means accuser. And for some mysterious reason, he finds a way to stand before God and point, point out every bad thing about you and every reason why you're not worthy of being in heaven or worthy of his love. And, and he gets cast out and down. But you do have someone who accuses you. But if God has chosen you, then what does it matter? Who, who, it doesn't matter. Oh, who else would bring an accusation against you? Oh, we have opponents, right? We have people who aren't happy with us, who slander us and say, oh, you call yourself a Christian. Well, let me tell you all about, right? Does it matter if God has already chosen you and is for you? It doesn't matter what that person is saying. It's hurtful and as problematic as it is. The only one you care about, the opinion, his opinion, is the Lord. And he says, if you're reconciled to God, you've got his favor. It doesn't matter who's going to say anything about you. And then thirdly, there's another creature. It's called your, your, your conscience. We know our own hearts. So we know what goes on in there. And so we don't always feel right before God or saved. Sometimes, yeah, the feelings are right, that we need to get right with him. But other times, we just don't feel worthy. And so John says in his first letter, he says, if your heart condemns you, guess what, heart? God is greater than your feelings, and God knows everything. Well, what does God know? God knows he's already acquitted you, no matter what your conscience is bubbling up with. But, 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 but. God knows, and God is greater. The work of Christ is greater than your feelings. You're not saved by your feelings or any such thing. He goes on to say here, it's verse 33b. He says, let's talk about this. You who have a problem accepting the fact that you're loved, you're going all the way through, and that God is totally in love with you. Let's talk about this. He says, it's God who justified you. So the word to justify there, 33b, is to put, be, be put right, to declare not guilty, to acquit. So if God acquits you, um, it's pretty much over, no matter who's doing this. Let them do this. There's one voice that matters. It's the voice of the judge of the earth, and he has acquitted us through Christ. One writer put it this way, if God takes the side of the defendant, no amount of evidence for the prosecution can wind up with an adverse verdict. So the devil, the conscience, or uh, your worst enemy out there is going to have to submit to what God has said. Now, when it comes to heaven and hell, he's going to ask some questions now. Let's reason with this. He says, you are so forgiven and so securely saved. Listen. When it comes to heaven and hell, who has the power to condemn? 
That's what he's asking. Who is it that condemns? It's a rhetorical question. Who sits on the throne in Revelation chapter 1? Who says, depart from me? I never knew you. That would be Christ. Answer, Christ is the one who can condemn. Now, let's talk about this. Who is Christ to you? Oh, Christ is my Savior. Oh, okay. So the one who has the power to condemn is actually not your judge, but your friend and your father and the one who saves you. So the one who has the power actually by title and relationship is your savior. He could do it. And then he goes into, okay, what did Christ do? Okay, it's Christ who died for your sins. So the one who would condemn you is the very one who paid so that you wouldn't be condemned. Oh, that's a good thought. So you stand before A, your Savior, who happened to be the one who actually made the payment on your behalf so that you wouldn't be condemned. And he says, oh, more than that, who was raised. What does he mean by that? He says, well, he didn't stay dead, did he? And the fact that he was raised from the dead is the cha-ching from God the Father that says payment has been received approval has been given, that your sins laid on him. You know when you go to the store, you buy something. You put the card in. She says, wrong way, right? <laughs> and, and then she says, no, the chip side, the chip side. So you, you put the chip in. And there's a couple seconds that go by, and you're waiting and standing there, and then those, that beautiful word appears. And what is it? Approved. <laughs> The resurrection, he says, more than that, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus paid in his death, and then by the very fact of his resurrection, he's saying that payment for your sins so that he doesn't condemn you went through and was accepted, and wait, there's more. Then he ascends to the highest place. At the right hand of God is an idiom that means at the highest honor with the greatest power and authority. He's there with a purpose to defend you and to intercede so that you will never perish. And so now, let's just review. He's just saying, you're afraid of something going wrong on Judgment Day? Well, let's talk about this. Who's the one who would make that decision? Christ. Okay, who is Christ to you? My Savior. Okay, what did he do for you? He died for all of my sins. And did he stay dead? No, he rose again. And then he went to heaven, and he's there as a testimony of God's finished work on the cross on my behalf, interceding for me. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And if you're wondering if you have the right documents on that day, you're not going to need to look through your purse or belongings for the receipt. I know it's in here somewhere. Payment has been made because he's got the payment receipts on both sides of his hands. Both arms just say, paid for, paid for, in full, 
It is finished is an accounting term. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. So Paul's just saying that you've got a problem. Are you worried about something going wrong? Who's Christ? He's your, he's your savior. He is the payment. He is the payment. Just looking at him. If you're wondering, oh, I'm not good, I'm not this, I'm not that, he'd just go, yeah, covered. Covered. And of course how you live matters. You can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved, but you can mess up your life something terrible. Incur the wrath of God, the, the chastisement, I should say, of God. Forfeit reward. And just get through and with your tail feathers still on fire, but you're still saved. But you know what? <laughs> you're going to regret that. And that is why, my friends, he has to wipe every tear away because there are tears right away at the thought of what could have been. But we do. Did that translate? <laughs> All right, we got more. Because he knows you're not done. You're still like, okay, okay. I, I'm forgiven. I get that. But you know, who knows? What if, what if he goes, okay, let me talk to you at 35. He says, I got another question for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he makes a big long list, quotes from the Old Testament, and then he adds some more illustrations of things that we might be uh, threatened by or fearful of. So let's talk about this. So he says, you know, I know what you're thinking. What if this happens? What if that happens? So we're going to move from securely saved to profoundly loved. And I want you to notice something here. Who or what can, can get in between the love of Christ? Not, it doesn't say Christ. The love of Christ is there to reveal to you what's driving God to keep you, to sustain you, to present you one day faultless before the great throne of God. What's driving him? What's the underpinning of this great plan to be for you is a heart of unfathomable, undying, unadulterated, divine love that burns in his heart for his children. And he says, listen, I mean, is it just what God does, the cross and all of this, or, or he just feels obligated, it's his duty as God, or, or maybe it was his image, you know, I have to do this for the way the angels look at me or whatever. No, 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 friend. It was this burning love for the one he created. This burning love that we can't even understand. He says, that's the love. He says, Jesus says, better meet a bear, a she-bear robbed of her cubs than to mess with one of my little babies. And he calls us his little babies. Do not mess with them, sir, he says, because I'll give you a choice. You can have concrete... <laughs> chain to your throat, we'll take you out to the Pacific Ocean and dump you overboard, or you can get what I have for you. Choose the ocean. It'll be way better than what I got for you. But there's this love that burns bright for you and for me, and that's what 
Paul wants us to rely upon. So Paul's asking, who could challenge that kind of love, this God love? So he says, okay, uh, let me make a short list for you, all right? And so he says, um, what do you think? He's God. He's running the universe. He's given everything you need for provision for salvation and all of this. He's predestined you. Got it. But there are seven things that people worry about. Let's talk about them. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He's saying in a rhetorical question, can any of these things stop God's love from saving the day in your life? He's going to say, not at all. Number one, trouble. The word means pressure, to be in the pressure cooker. Number two, hardship. It means a painful affliction that causes inward distress. Three, Persecution, wide range, from a roll of the eyes, because you quoted a Bible verse, to martyrdom, killing you, murdering you because you're a Christian, which happens probably today somewhere in the world. Um, Famine, the word just means hunger. You know, back in those days, uh, there wasn't a Trader Joe's on every other corner, right? Sadly, (laughs) or a Safeway. And so food was a big thing, having enough food. And he's saying that kind of poverty. Nakedness was another idiom for not having enough money for even the basic clothing. And danger means being vulnerable in a hostile environment, especially if you're a believer in all of the unique kinds of uh, threats that we face in, in, in other parts of the world, especially. And then the sword. It means to be executed. So he's saying, can any of these things stop God from loving you, from change your destiny whatsoever, rob you of eternal life, and your God-given place at his table? Can it happen? No. Well, interestingly, Paul has been through six of those things, and he will go through number seven. And here's what he's saying. I just listed stuff that I've been through. He's saying, I'm no worse for wear. No one enjoys these things. He's just saying, here I am. I'm writing for the Lord, the New Testament, right? I've been through all of these things, and it hasn't stopped me. It hasn't stopped God's love. In fact, it's been a benefit. He's working all things together for good. And so the list, he says, and then he quotes there. I love it. Verse 36 Uh, He quotes Psalm 44 in verse 22, and he says, okay, um, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. He says, a thousand years ago, Christians were going through all of these things. And he quotes David, and he says, for your sake, O Lord, we face death every day. We're like sheep going down to the slaughter. So he's saying, listen, folks, it's these one through seven. It's kind of our lot in life. You haven't done anything wrong. That's just the way it can be at times. And none of those things, including death, is going to be able to stop God from loving you or change any good plan he has for you. And so then I love it. He says, hey, it's part and parcel of our lives. But then he says, but no. In all of these things, because of Christ and his love, and aren't you thankful that it doesn't say because of our love for God? Oh, man, that will be 
one depressing passage. <laughs> because our love comes and goes, but his love, man, I'm just glad about that. So he says, because of Christ and his love, we're more than conquerors. We've got to explain that now. He says, these seven areas I'm talking about, man, there's, there's winning it, and then there's crushing it. And he says, because of Christ and his hold on your life, you are crushing it, even though it may not seem it right now or feel like it, that in Christ, if you're cooperating with God and handling the thing biblically and just kind of limping along in the right direction with an open heart before him, he says, man, you're not just a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. Well, what does that mean? A conqueror achieves victory. More than a conqueror just sort of blows it out. All right? Just kind of like this. Let me give you an example. Back in 1940, the eighth game of the NFL playoffs, all right, the Chicago Bears didn't just conquer the Washington Redskins. You know what they did to them? They more than conquered them. <laughs> 73 to zero. It's a record. All right? So this is what he's talking about. There's winning, and then there's <laughs> crushing it. All right? Let me give you another example. Tiger Woods, you know, he's pretty good with golf in other areas, right? But let's, let's talk about the 2000 U.S. Open. There's winning that thing, and then there's winning it by 15 strokes. I don't even play golf very much, but I know that's pretty impressive. 15 strokes, it's a record beyond records, dominating anything. Nothing's even close. That's crushing it. The Golden Gloves Tournament. Oh, back in the day. Some boxer named Mike Collins. He floored this guy, Pat Brownson. You know what? How many seconds? Four seconds in the first round. He knocked him out, right? What do you do with your popcorn? What do you do? <laughs> What do you do? Hey, we're going out to see a great fight. One, two, three, four, pop. <laughs> the guy goes out, knocked completely unconscious. That's a record. That's not just conquering. That's more than conquering. He's saying, so, so tell me about your cancer, Christian. You're more than a conqueror. You're crushing it. Well, it doesn't feel... It's not about your feelings. It's what God says is fact, is that in Christ, the born-again you, the predestined you, tell me about the divorce. Terrible things happen in this world. You're crushing it. Not by your willpower, not by your endurance, not by your good attitude, because of Christ's love that rests on you and his predetermined intention to take you all the way through and use even this terrible thing to perfect you, to deepen you, and to reward you even further in the life to come. This is just an amazing thing to be more than a conqueror, and that is who you are. Listen, you don't feel like a conqueror, more than a conqueror? Did Job, for like 36 chapters... <laughs> Sitting on the ash heap, scraping his lesions away. Didn't feel like it, but little did he know, and he didn't know 
he was crushing it. He's the go-to guy for millennia on how to suffer biblically. A standing ovation in heaven when that dude arrived. And it didn't look like Paul the Apostle was crushing it. It looked like it was crushing him. But surprise, and my friends, did it look like Jesus was crushing it when he was being crushed? Naked and stripped on the cross, bleeding and so bruised that he, he didn't look human, the Bible says. He did not feel like he was crushing it. He already asked if there's any way you could take this away, but nevertheless, your will be done. And it did not seem to him or anybody else looking on that he was changing the destiny of billions of souls, taking them from an appointment to eternal condemnation to eternal commendation and reward through that terrible, nasty, evil, thing. He crushed it because he obeyed. And the father said, you're going to have to go through this. I've got a plan and it's good. You're going to crush it. Be patient. It's coming. So Paul's concluding thoughts here. He says, I'm convinced. Look at that word. He says, no shadow of doubt here. He says that no matter what. So if you weren't impressed with the first list of seven categories of your troubles, he's got some more because he knows the Holy Spirit knows how we are. But but, 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 but what about this? So he says, okay, I got you. But by the end of this, he's going to back you right into the wall so that you're going to have to be forced to be happy. I just pictured Eeyore being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Oh, we're all going to die. Well, okay, he says, okay, listen. He says, number one, here's the code. There's four pairs and two singles, then we're done. Death in life. Well, we get death. The Grim Reaper. You know everybody fears that. You know, it's just saying, listen, you don't have to worry about death when he's the author of life and he's beating that new life that's eternal in your chest. Not death. Not death. I read a rude remark about the tragedy in Texas that said, look at their prayers. Their prayers went unheard. Oh, and if I could have logged on and left something... It was probably God's will that I couldn't. (laughs) But I'll tell you what. Oh, no, sir. (laughs) Those prayers were heard. And death did not harm them because they're more alive and doing better than anybody else in this room right now. And the perpetrator is in his place awaiting trial. And the place where you await trial It's called Hades, and it's called a place of torment. So, sir, those prayers, they work because they work in death, and they work in life, and they work when there are angels or demons, or they work today, tomorrow, 
or forever. This is what he's getting at. Listen, so he goes on. When he says life, it's like, what is life? He's saying, listen, there are people who are afraid to die, and there are people who are afraid to live. And he's saying, if your problem exists in life, it's covered by the policy. That's all he's saying. Whatever haunts you in death, covered. Whatever stalks you in life, covered. Can we move on? Yeah, sure, Paul. How about angels and demons? Yeah, not a problem because the ancient world knew there were these kind of beings. And he's just saying, listen, those beings bow to your Lord who is for you. So nothing there to worry about. And then he goes on to say, nothing in the present or the future. Here's what he means by that. Time is powerless against the believer. Whatever time may bring... In this life or the next, God's love triumphs. Well, we've been there 10,000 years, shining as bright as the sun. We know less days to sing God's praise. And when we first begun, and guess what? You get another 10,000. And then you get another 10,000. He says, listen, in this life and the life to come, no troubles. No troubles. Don't worry about that. Now, I love this word here. Um, nor, nor any powers. Now, that word means supernatural powers working malevolently against you. Now, and what he means is in a world that had spells and witchcraft and karma and incantations, none of that black magic has, it's real. There are demonic powers like that. He said, but no worries. I can't touch you. Listen, uh, Barb and I were at... Uh, Fisherman's Wharf, summer evening, out for dinner. It was nice. We stopped uh, along the way because there was a fortune teller. So I had to tell her her fortune. <laughs> <laughs> so I told her, I've got a fortune for you. All right, so let me tell you, if you continue in this way, it won't be good when you stand before God because God is against what you're doing, fortune telling. And she says to me, oh, no, 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 I'm a Christian. And I said, don't even start. (laughs) And so I was trying to explain to her that if you profess Christ, you depart from the things that Christ has condemned. So then her mentor, mama bear of sorts, came up and I felt her before I saw her from the just the kind of the eerie thing. And she grabbed the tarot cards, and I'm still engaged talking, sharing the gospel, and she starts to kind of wing them over me and and kind of like muttering something gibberish and then tosses it over my head. And it goes like that. And it just kind of freaked me out a little bit, like, ooh, whatever that was. And then she says she picks it up like she did something to me. And she said, now it's time for you to leave. And I said, I was leaving anyway, just so you know. And, you know, she's, she's got to make some money here, okay? I said, there are better ways to make money. And I said, I'll be praying for you. And I walked away, and Barb was, like, spooked out. I was spooked out, too, because there was, like, a little thing going on, <laughs> you know? And here's what the Lord whispered. She said, how do you feel about what just happened there? And I said to her, the Lord has told me that my prayers on her behalf are powerful. Her spell over me, powerless. Because he is sovereign. 
and I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and her words just fell to the ground. Amen? That's how it is. That's how it is, people. He says, come on. We're almost done here. Sorry. This is a big, yeah, 39, verse 39. He says, neither height nor depth. I love this one. What does this mean? Uh, He means, okay, name your thing. Does it fit anywhere in between the lowest bottom shelf of earth in the universe and the highest top, the ceiling of heaven? Does your trouble fit anywhere in there? And you're going to have to say what he wants you to say. Yeah, okay, it fits in there somewhere. Done! You're included in the policy. No problem. And then he goes on, he's getting almost ridiculous with a sense of humor now. He's saying, uh, you know, nor anything else in all of creation. So he heard you saying, yeah, but you don't understand. Here's what he's saying. Does your problem exist? You're going to have to say, yeah, it exists, because that's why it's a problem, right? If it exists, it's covered, and you're crushing it. That's how wide he has to go to say, is it in creation? Is it from top to bottom? Is it in timeline? Is it anywhere? So he's just saying, you know what? God is greater. He's above it. He's stronger. And that love for you will never die. And your place always secure. You're more than a conqueror through Christ and his love. So he asks, I am. I'm just going to say this. You've been given a fix-it ticket. It's on the dash of every human soul placed there by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. you got a chance, if you haven't been reconciled, to meet with the nicely dressed judge <laughs> whose name is Jesus Christ, who's here sitting next to you on the bus here at the sermon, and he's just asking you, can I be of some help? Can I change the course of your destiny? Can I help you with what's coming? You know, you are going to face death, and you're going to have to answer for every little thing. I died for all of those things, so I'd like you to kind of consider that and let me save you. That answer's up to you. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your great love, and guess what? What a beautiful passage. It just touches our hearts in so many ways. It's almost difficult to believe, Lord, so help us with that. It's so good and so wonderful. Help us cling to these truths in times when we are most needy of that. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.